Hello and welcome to The Stack. This week we feature two iconic titles, Variety and Ebony. Oscar season is always a booming period for the traditional entertainment publication. So what are their Oscar coverage plans for this year? We'll find out. Also on the show, a new book celebrating 75 years of Ebony magazine. The magazine that covered black America like no one else. Stay tuned. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Coming up on the show, I had the pleasure to speak with Lavelle Lavette on an incredible new book covering the 75 years of Ebony magazine. But first on the show, a title that I've been reading for years. If you're interested in the Oscars and the film industry in general, how could you not? It's variety. This year and last were a wild ride for the film industry, and that affected award ceremonies too. I'm incredibly curious how the Oscars will turn out this year. To tell me a bit more about their Oscars coverage for this year for Variety, and a bit more about the iconic publication, I spoke with Clayton Davis, Variety's Film Awards editor. What better way to start a new job in the middle of a pandemic and something that you love so much and have been covering for so long, you're going to start that new job in the most difficult year that we've ever had awards-wise and will probably be the most difficult we'll ever have, uh, you know, crossing my fingers. So I've, I've been optimistic about that part of just saying, you know, listen, any year that comes after this one is going to pale in comparison. You know, someone's going to ask me, you know, how's this Oscar season? I'm like, I covered the COVID year. I'm good. The industries, we've had to adapt. There's been a lot of trying new things, so much to cover, you know, and being the film awards editor, I mean, this is like, I, I don't blow smoke. And I mean this, like, this is my dream job. Like there are very few positions that exist like this in the industry. And I am so lucky and blessed to feel that I've gotten one of them, but, you know, coming into it, I mean, we had 366 movies submit for the Oscars. And if you want to be a good film awards editor, a good Oscar pundit, you try to watch and cover as many of them as possible. And especially for me as a person who's a big advocate for diversity and representation and inclusion, you know, you don't want to just get like, you know, the, the big name, you know, big tentpole movies. You want to get those slice of life independent films from emerging filmmakers that, you know, general audiences typically don't hear a lot about. And my big job here is to make sure those underrepresented voices get, you know, their voices lifted up. And you're very right. And I did say at the beginning that it's the busiest time for you, you know, as, as a job. But at the same time, I think not many people know, but actually as a, as a film awards editor, I think you work hard the whole year, right? Because you have to keep an eye. I mean, which films might do well? And, and sometimes, you know, I, I remember the year of Get Out. I think the film was released quite early in the year, but still was nominated. So you know, you kind of have to keep track of everything, right? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, the way I cover the Oscars it is a year-round, it is a year-round gig. You know, as soon as the Oscar ceremony is concluded on April 25th, I'm predicting the next year's ceremony. Many of these films haven't started filming yet, you know, or, you know, it's all speculation, but you, you, you start looking at those things that kind of, creates the makeup of what an Oscar movie is. And that definition is changing and we're seeing it year to year. You know, what we thought was, you know, atypical Oscar, you know, bait isn't the case anymore. And you're seeing that in the winners 
of the last few years. You see it in the shape of water. You see it in moonlight. You know, you saw it last year with Parasite, and we might see it again this year if Nomadland emerges victorious. Like, this is just a changing industry, exciting, you know, change is not bad. It has been a long time coming, but the Oscars have done the, the, the work of trying to make sure that the makeup of the Academy, the membership is diverse. And you have seen that trickle into what they've uh, nominated and recognized the last few years. No, and I've noticed that. And I've noticed how they became quite international as well. So it, it really became a global event because, I mean, look at the success, as you mentioned, about, you know, Parasite. And I think it's so important because I actually don't think the Oscars is just for the United States. I, I remember growing up as a kid in Brazil, I used to watch on television. It, it is a big deal, right? Yeah, yeah. And you said it beautifully right there. It's not just for America. And I think one thing that has been lost in the membership of the Academy, and maybe that's so much the membership, I think this is also an American problem with general audiences, is the, the embrace of international cinema that we have not done collectively as a, as a country. You know, Parasite won Best Picture. It's the first international film to do it. I need to add, it wasn't the first worthy one to win Best Picture. We've had many over the years. We still have a huge problem recognizing documentary. A documentary is yet to be nominated for Best Picture. So we, we have this very one track look at what makes up a, a movie, quote unquote. And for international cinema, you know, I argue, listen, with my own family members, we have to get over this hump of the one inch text at the bottom of a screen of reading subtitles. It's, and, and the thing is, what's frustrating is that you know they're gonna love it. You know these are films that speak to their sensibilities, what they typically have gone for. And I've had movies that have shown to friends and family international features with subtitles that they've loved, but to get them to watch another one is like been, you know, the, the cross to carry all throughout the time. But yes, you, you said it beautifully, it is not just for Amer movies, film, cinema, is a universal language. We all, we all speak it. We all speak it, and it's the one universal language that is made up in art. Art is universal. You know, music, film, television, like it all speaks to everyone in any part of the world. So we have to be able to get more global and more open, let, let, mature our cinematic palettes, you know, when, when it comes to anything like this. Well said. And, and now I just want to focus a little bit on, on variety. What does the Oscars mean for variety? You know, the magazine, the website, or, you know, I, I know you spread your content all over yeah. social media as well. What does it mean? Because for me, it feels like it, it, it's, it's like the Vogue September issue. For the fashion industry, it's all about September. Um, for variety, I mean, this year is April, of course, but it's usually February or March. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, listen, Variety is the leading voice in entertainment. We just celebrated 115 years, you know, in, in existence. Not many publications can say that. And to be even more frank, to have it be a magazine that still is thriving, you know, still today is, is unheard of. There's just not, a, there's a lot of publications are struggling. When it comes to the Oscars, I mean, we're, we're, we're the leading voice in, in, in the industry. We talk to all the sources with, within the industry from top executives 
down to, you know, the grips and boom mic operators, you know, on a set, you know, we're talking to casting people. When it, when it gets to the awards, you know, I'm speaking to the actual Academy voters, speaking to the award strategists that it's their job to campaign for these movies and how they're going to sell it. You know, we're talking to marketing executives. How do you sell something like Judas and the Black Messiah to a, to a public that is definitely open to black cinema, but as we are in this time of Black Lives Matter and we are having this racial conversation long overdue, by the way, you know, how, how do you have that film speak to not just black audiences, but, but white audiences too? These are all the different things that Variety has done exceptionally well over the years. And to be a part of that now just shows that our stamp on the award cycle cannot be understated. When Variety says something, it matters. So that them taking the initiative to not only have that lead in authority, but then to hire someone like me, who is a person of color, one of the first to ever hold a position like this at any publication, shows that they see what's ahead. The academy's changing, the industry's changing, and the stereotypical old white guys have dominated this space. It's time for new blood to come in within within the ranks. And that's why the, the magazine still thrives today. Simple as that. And, and you've, you know, you've mentioned, you know, journalist of color in your position. Are, are you also, I, I was reading a little bit about your biography, you're the, the president of the Latino Entertainment uh, journalist association, right? Which I think super cool as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm president and, found, and co-founded uh, that that organization. I'm also a member of the African American Film Critics Association, along with you know Critics Choice Association and many others. And I'm so proud of of my affiliations and what I've been able to achieve over my career, is because I am the average Joe guy that you know, was born in Bronx, New York, in a pretty poor project-ridden neighborhood and just loved movies. I'm not an academic by any, by any standards. Like I haven't, you know, studied the intricacies of Citizen Kane versus, you know, Gone with the Wind. Like I, I love movies and I believe that I am a great bridge between Hollywood, which is seen by normal consumers as just this elitist so far out there, not connected to anything that's happening in, in my life. As someone who's from that, that world of, you know, grew up in New York, grew up in, in the Bronx and, you know, living here, I know, and didn't, and by the way, didn't see a lot of Clayton Davis's in films or covering the journalistic space. It, it's been very, it's humbling, but it's also, I know it's a it's a huge lift because I want a little five year old version of me, some little Puerto Rican black kid somewhere is going to see me and then say like, oh, I can, I can do that too. And that's been one of the things. I was so late to the game here, and I I'm very open about that. I was late to getting into journalism because I didn't know I could do it. And then opportunity presents itself, you know, even when you're not looking for it. Listen, that that's amazing. And, and Clayton, of course, I have to ask. 
what are your plans actually on the Oscars day? I mean, it's approaching. I think you'll be pretty busy. You will do some collaborations with ABC as well. And yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be, uh, you know, one of the correspondents uh, for the five hour pre-show that's going to be going on before the Oscars, you know, then obviously, you know, watching the event, doing a lot of video interviews and commentary. Listen, I, I think for everyone to, to really know, this, this crop of nominees, top to bottom, best picture all the way down, is the most accessible for general audiences that there's ever been. All of them are available right now from your couch on your TV if you just look for it. You can be the most engaged this year ever with the Academy, Academy Awards because it's often said, they nominate movies I've never heard of. And you may not have heard of them, but then take the time and, and go seek them out. This year was an amazing year for film, despite tragedy and this year being obviously difficult. It is a, it's an amazing year worth, you know, worth celebrating. And I don't want that to be lost. You know, even in times of tragedy, you can find the light at the end of the tunnel. And nine out of 20 acting slots going to people of color. Very likely we're gonna see the first Asian American woman, I'm sorry, first Asian woman, first person of color win best director. You can't not be excited about that. I, I'm, I'm ecstatic and there's still work to do, but I'm really excited for what the Oscars are gonna bring this year. And finally, can I ask if you have a favorite or, or I mean, can a Variety Film Awards editor have a favorite? Of course you can have a favorite. The way you cover it is unbiased, but you can have your own personal. Listen, I, I released my top 10 of the year. My favorite film of the year was Nomadland. So I've like been clear, can Nomadland lose Best Picture? It sure can. And it, and it could lose to something like The Trial of the Chicago 7, which I loved as well. Promise a Young Woman, Me Not E from Lee Isaac Chung, which is my number four film of the year. You know, I, I'm rooting for Nomadland and, you know, it's, I, but anything can happen this year. And I think you're going to see a lot of love spread everywhere. You know, Chadwick Boseman is going to win Best Actor, like I'm pretty sure. Daniel Kaluuya is going to win Supporting Actor. Uh, Yu Jung Yoon is going to win Supporting Actress, I believe. She'll be the second Asian woman to ever win an acting Oscar. The last one was uh, Miyoshi Yumeki for Sayonara in 1957. We are in 2021. I'm excited and I, I have like my own personal loves, but whatever the night brings, I'll be, I'll be happy. That was Clayton Davis, Variety Film Awards editor. And enjoy the Oscars this weekend, I will. For some Oscars analysis, do tune in here to Monaco 24 on The Globalist on Monday, where film critic Karen Krizanovic will be there telling all the results and what we need to know about the Oscars. Moving on now to another iconic title, Ebony, the title that was originally modeled in Life magazine, covered black America since 1945. From civil rights to a celebration of black success in fields ranging from music to politics, the title and its incredibly glamorous covers were a staple in black households for decades. In Ebony, covering black America, Lavelle Lavette, the president and publisher at Ebony Magazine Publishing, gives a historic tour of the title and a very special week she had celebrating the book's launch. I don't remember life without Ebony. You know, it's 75 years old. So Ebony was a part of not only my life, but my, my mother, my father, even my grandmother. You know, so Ebony has been a part of the family. It's been a part of our family 
uh, for me day one. And um, I can remember having Ebony on the coffee table. I can remember going to, um, you know, the beauty shop and having, you know, Ebony and Jet, everyone while they're waiting, you know, to get their hair done, everybody's reading an Ebony or a Jet. And um, it's a collectible. It was, it, it wasn't, it was a magazine that you didn't just pick up, read and toss it away. You kept it, you know, and the covers, you kept it because of the covers as well. I mean, the content in the magazine, of course, is riveting and covering all things Black America, but uh, the covers initially as a kid attracted me, you know, to the magazine. And then of course, exploring what was in it further uh, cemented my love for Ebony. Yeah. And I love, you know, I was reading uh, at the preface of the book as well, saying that the Ebony was kind of based a little bit on Life magazine, but they wanted to be the Life magazine for Black America. And I think they managed that because the topics covered, I mean, it goes from uh, cultural aspects to sports, to civil rights, politics. It was generally like the whole life, you know, of someone. Right, right. Yeah, yeah that's, that's pretty much as we... We're looking at how we're going to title this. You know, we started out, well, we're celebrating 75 years. So, you know, Ebony 75, but when, you know, delving into the archives and really looking at what Ebony covered, you know, because at a glance, people might think, if you're not familiar, but I don't know who's not familiar with Ebony, that, oh, it's entertainment, it's lifestyle, but it's love and family, it's music, it's our art. So it covered everything, hence Ebony covering Black America. So yes, Ebony is more than a magazine. Like I said, Ebony was our Facebook, <laughs> our Instagram. This is where we got our information from. And not just the famous, but people that you should know about. People, doctors, uh, people of high rankings in the military, people in medicine teachers, educators, uh, stories about, you know, the plight of not just Black America, but our educational system, what's happening with youth. So, yeah, Ebony covered everything, and Ebony continues to cover everything. Well, talking about continuing to cover everything, I think because of the historical importance of Ebony, you've been having quite a busy week. I mean, you're, you're there in Washington, D.C., Tell us a bit more about the events uh, celebrating around the release of the book as well. And, right. and of course, we have to add, it's been great news as well with the George Floyd case. I, I just looked at your website, of course. Uh, there's plenty of coverage in there as well. Right, right. So I'm here in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, celebrating the book, celebrating 75 years of Ebony with the Congressional Black Caucus. We partnered, Ebony Magazine Publishing, our division, we partnered with the National Urban League and a few corporations to launch, kick off the book in our nation's capital, but also looking at the importance of this book, some of our legislators got involved because they were, Ebony has been there everything, you know, speaking with um, elected officials and congressmen, they were just so happy, our turnout we had all of the leadership and then some at our kickoff celebration on yesterday, uh, just a few feet away from the Capitol. 
And so what we're doing is we are embarking on a what started out to be a 10 city tour, but looks like it might be a 20 city tour um, where we're not just coming into a city and talking about the book. We actually have sponsors that are making the book available. They're buying the book and they're donating the book to public school systems, to public libraries and to community centers. And so in DC, we're just, you know, over the moon that Amplify Education and the Lorna Johnson Foundation joined us in, you know, purchasing these books and making sure through the Urban League that they are getting in the hands of our youth. And so part of our mission with this tour is to connect, connect gaps, right? Connect generations, right? You know, this is history. And so we want our young people to know that, to understand that, that they are standing on the shoulders of giants, that as Black Americans, we accomplished a great deal. We've, we've had our fights. We still continue to fight for equal justice and to be treated equally for all people, not just Black America, white America, all people from all walks of life, basically. And so with this tour, we're using this book as a conduit to start conversations around the contributions that we've made, looking at where we are now, looking at the now, how can we use our history to make our now better? You know, how can we use our history to ensure that our future is better? And so the response has been overwhelming, overwhelmingly positive to this book and the conversations that it's generated. I was at dinner last night with a group of congressional uh, members of congressional staff in their 20s and 30s. And it's just amazing how enthused and just so excited about this book and the conversations that, that were sparked because of this book. You know, we got together because of this book. And so this book is, is a bridge. And I think it's a bridge that I don't, I, I don't see an ending. I see that this book will be on the coffee tables of generations to come. So, you know, we're beyond the moon about it. And, and I gotta be honest, uh, Lavella, you know, I knew about Ebony, but I didn't know about the, the full history. And, and I was so surprised looking at the covers from the forties and fifties. I mean, how empowering they were in a way. I mean, we do talk about the presentation of the black community, but at that time it must have been something so unusual, right? Because uh, of course there was even more restrictions against the black community at the time, but it was a celebration of black success on a time that it was quite difficult to do that. Mm -hmm. My mother tells me when she was a little girl that when the Ebony uh, came into the house, it was a major event. And she didn't always have a subscription to it because they, um, you know, I'm say poor, pretty much, yeah, they were poor. So, you know, they couldn't afford, um, you know, some of the pleasures of, you know, having magazine subscriptions. So they would huddle with their friends who, I think it was uh, one of her good friends, a couple of houses down from her, they had a subscription to Ebony Magazine. And so that was one of the most popular girls in school because when that magazine, you know, came in, they all huddled around it 
and even tore out some of the pictures and got in trouble for doing that, you know, tearing out some of the pictures of some of their um, favorite events or celebs or whatever was covered to put on their walls and that kind of thing. So, you know, it's, um, it's meant the world. I mean, it's, it's inspired so many people, you know, it told them back then doing Jim Crow and, you know, the segregation that, you know, no, we are a people. We are uh, worthy and we are doing uh, phenomenal things. And it has helped to build so many black Americans uh, because in that time, all you saw was the suppression, you know? And, and when Mr. Johnson created this magazine, and he modeled it off of Life magazine, he wanted to show us in bright, bold colors. He wanted to show the positive things that we were doing, but also, you know, not turn a blind eye to all of the horrible things that was happening to us as Black Americans. That's why they covered the Emmett Till uh, funeral and open casket and showed that to the world, the March on Washington the bus boycott, you know, so they, they were our, our information to the world, our, our connection to each other was done through Ebony and Jet magazine. And Lavelle, I might ask you kind of a difficult question because it's about the covers again. There's been so many amazing covers. I mean, I, I quite like the music section of the book as well. There's a beautiful mm -hmm. uh, Grace Jones cover from 1979. The incredible mm. Tina Turner as well. She has, I think, like three covers. Do you have a favorite or one that you always kind of, I don't know, feel emotion about it almost? Hmm. Gosh, it's, they're all my favorites. Uh, and you know what? I, so that I would not make this book a sole representation of what, what Lavelle Levet <laughs> uh, likes, what I'm into. What I did was I called upon uh, some friends, some people that are well-known, some people that aren't well-known. And I just wanted to get a potpourri of people's opinion about the covers, what stood out to them. And so that's how we were able to curate the books that went into the sections because the book is uh, divided into five sections, social justice, love and family, music, ebony men, ebony women. And so that's how it started coming together. You know, I would call upon a famous friend or called upon a friend in education or someone in the medical field and just ask them. We gave them a, a Dropbox of the various covers and asked them to peruse and come back and, and tell us what jumped out to you and why. And that's how the quotes were generated. They spoke on um, what those particular covers meant, meant to them. But it's funny, um, I guess you and I are on the same kind of wavelength because that Grace Jones cover is one of my favorite covers. <laughs> I mean, I could do a print and put it on my wall, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that, uh, that's a striking cover. So it's, it's one of my favorites. And Lavelle, what's Ebony in 2021? I mean, I, I, I'm just a bit curious. I mean, do you, do you know what are the plans, you know, for the brand or for the magazine, perhaps digitally or print? I'm, I'm not sure. 
Yeah, well, Ebony is back. I don't think it never really went away. I just think it's, it's um, the strength of it is back. Uh, the positioning of it in our society is back. And the Bridgman family, uh, Mr. Junior Bridgman, his daughter Eden, his son Justin, Ebony is in their care now. Just like the Johnson's family created it and shepherded, and now the Bridgman family has it. And they feel a deep responsibility to honoring what Mr. Johnson started and continuing in that, in that tradition. And so their plans are varied. We have the book division. A lot of people know that Ebony published books. And so I'm in charge of that. Uh, there are plans in all areas of media um, for Ebony. Uh, so Ebony will be, you know, our voice for social justice, for entertainment, for education. So I'm excited about um, what the Bridgman family has planned for it. There's, they've assembled a A-team, all-star team with CEO uh, Michelle Gee, uh, Mr. Charles Alexander, who is just brilliant. Uh, and so the, the ship, the ebony ship is in capable, great hands. That was Laval Lavat, and Ebony Covering Black America is out now. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Nora Hall. And if you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fp at monaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. And you can always listen to it again at monaco.com or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And before I go, as Lavelle was saying, one of our favorite covers of Ebony was the amazing 1979 edition with Grace Jones on the cover. To celebrate this, it's Grace Jones with I've Seen That Face Before. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Straight.